Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Chapter 19 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Summary of the Legend of the Craft. The legend of the craft, as it is given to us in what we have called the latter manuscripts, that is to say the Dowland and those that follow it, begins with a study of the seven liberal arts and sciences. We have already shown that among the students of the same time with the legendists, these seven arts and sciences were esteemed. In the courses of education, not so much as the foundation, but as the finished structure of all human learning. The legend naturally had the very spirit of the age in which it was invented, but especially did the Freemasons refer to these sciences and make a description of them, the preface as it were to the story that they were about to tell, because the principal science was geometry, and this they held to be the same thing as Freemasonry. The close connection between geometry and architecture, as practiced by the operative Freemasons of the Middle Ages, is well known. The secrets, which the Freemasons were supposed to have, were almost entirely in an application of the principles of the science of geometry to the art of building. Then the legend goes on to tell of some particulars about the children of Lamech. These details are said in the legend to have been from the book of Genesis, but were probably taken at second hand from the Polychronicon, or universal history of the monk Higden of Chester. This part of the legend, which is not otherwise connected with the Masonic story, appears to have been used for the sake of mentioning the pillars of which the sons of Lamech are said to have inscribed an account of the sciences which they have discovered, so that the knowledge of them might not be lost because of the destruction of the world which they feared. This story of the inscribed pillars was a tradition of every people, told with variations by all historians and fully believed by the many. The legendists of Freemasonry got the account from Josephus, perhaps through Higden, but altered it to suit the spirit of their own tale. Then we are told that Hermes found one of these pillars and was, from the information that it contained, enabled to restore the knowledge of the sciences, and especially of Freemasonry, to the world after the flood. This was a tribute of the legendists to the universally accepted opinion of the ancients, who esteemed the thrice great Hermes as the mythical founder of all science and philosophy. We are next told that Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, availed himself of the wisdom that had been recovered by Hermes. He was noted for his architectural works and first gave importance to the art of Freemasonry at the building of the Tower of Babel. The legend credits Nimrod with forming the Freemasons into an organized body, and he was the first who gave them a constitution or laws for their government. Freemasonry, according to the legendary story, was founded in Babylon whence it passed over to the rest of the world. All of this means simply a general belief existed in the historical opinion that Chaldea was the birthplace of knowledge and that the wise men of that country were the first teachers of Asia and Europe. Modern discoveries of the cuneiform or wedge-shaped inscriptions show that the Masonic legendists had, at a guess, obtained a more correct idea of the true character of Nimrod than that which had been hitherto received, 
founded on the brief mention of him in Genesis and the low estimate of him in the antiquities of Josephus. Legends written by the monks had made Abraham living at the same time as Nimrod, and the book of Genesis had described the visit of the patriarch and his wife to the land of Egypt. Combining these two stories, the idea was suggested to the legendists that Abraham had carried into Egypt the knowledge which he had received from the Chaldeans and had taught it to the inhabitants. We find it is stated that Egypt was, after Babylonia, the place where the arts and sciences were first cultivated, and from there they spread out to other countries. Among these arts and sciences, geometry, which we have seen was always connected in the Masonic mind with architecture, held a prominent place. He who taught it to the Egyptians was typically known by the name of Euclid, because the old Freemasons were familiar with the fact that he was then esteemed, as he still is, the greatest of geometricians and almost the inventor of science. If we accept the reference to Euclid not as a blundering mixing of up of historical events, but rather as the telling of an idea in a symbolic style, we cannot fairly class the legendary story of the condition of learning in Egypt as a pure and unadulterated fiction. It is an undoubted fact that Egypt was the source from whence science and learning flowed into southern Europe and western Asia. Neither can it be disputed that civilization had grown there and ripened long before Greece or Rome was known. Moreover, it is agreed that the ancient mysteries from which Freemasonry has borrowed, not its organization, but a part of the science of symbolism, received its birth in the land of the Nile, and that the mysteries of Osiris and Isis were the beginning of all the mystical initiations which were celebrated in Asia and in southern Europe. They have even been claimed, though perhaps incorrectly, as the origin of those in Gaul, in Britain, and in Scandinavia. By a rapid change, the legend passes from the founding of Freemasonry or architecture, for it must be remembered that in the legends the two words meant the same thing, to its appearance in Judea, the land of behest, where under the favor and direction of King Solomon, the Temple of Jerusalem was built. All that is said in this portion of the legend purports to be taken from the Bible account of the same event and must have the same historical value. In regard to the error made in the name and title of him who is now well known to Freemasons as Hiram Abiff, a sufficient explanation has been given in the preceding chapter. Then we have an account of the travels into various countries of these Freemasons or architects who built the temple, there to get further ability and experience, and to spread the principles of their art. The careless use of the facts of history, so peculiar to that generally untaught age, has led the legendists to connect this spread of architecture among the various civilized countries of the world with the Tyrian and Jewish Freemasons. But the wanderings of that body of builders, known as the traveling Freemasons of the Middle Ages, through all the kingdoms of Europe, and their labors in the building of the great houses and homes for the church, the cathedrals and the monasteries, and other public edifices, are matters of historical record. Thus, the historical idea is well preserved in the legend of a body of artists who wandered over Europe and were employed in the construction of public works of finest quality. Following this, we find the legend tells of the coming of architecture into France and the influence exerted upon it by the Grecian architects, who brought with them into that kingdom the principles of Byzantine art. These are facts supported by history. The position given to France above Spain or Italy or Germany suggests to us that the legend was either of French origin or was written under French control. The story of the condition of Freemasonry or of architecture among the Britons at the time of St. Alban or the 4th century is simply a use in legendary style of the history of the bringing of the art of building into England. 
This apparently came about during the Roman control and by the Collegia Artificum, or Roman colleges, of expert workmen and artistic architects who came with these soldiers when they defeated the forces of Hesperia, Gaul, and Britain, and made these countries colonies. The decay of architecture in Britain after the Roman armies had left that country to defend their empire from the attacks of the northern host of savages was due to the fact that Britain was left in an unprotected state and was soon engaged in wars with the Picts, the Danes, and other enemies. This is told in the legend and is its version of a historical fact. Moreover, it is historically true that in the 7th century, peace was restored to the northern parts of the island. At that time, Edwin, king of Northumbria, of which the city of York was the capital, revived the arts of civilization, gave his special favor to architecture, and caused many public buildings, among others the Cathedral of York, to be built. All of this is told in the legend, although by an error that has already been explained, Edwin, the Northumbrian king, was in the later legend confused with the brother of Athelstan. The second decline of architecture in England, because of the attacks of the Danes, and the civil as well as foreign wars which laid waste the kingdom until the reign of Athelstan in the early part of the 10th century when entire peace was restored, is briefly mentioned in the legend, therein agreeing with the history of that troubled period. After peace was restored, the legend records the revival of Freemasonry or architecture in the 10th century under the reign of Athelstan, who called the craft together and gave them a charter. We have already gone into this matter and shown that the story of the legend has nothing unlikely about it and that it is easily to be reconciled with the facts of the history of that period. The two forms of the legend we can fit nicely together by claiming that Edwin of Northumbria revived masonry in an assembly called by him at York, and that Athelstan restored its decayed prosperity by his public favor, and by charters which he gave to the guilds or corporations of skilled workmen. We may pass in this general way over the principal events told in the legend of the craft, and thus we free it from the charge of being a very childish story. This has been urged against it, even by some Masonic writers who have viewed it in a spirit of rude criticism. We find that its statements are not the fancies of a fertile maker of fictions, nor mere guesses, but that, on the contrary, they really have a support in what was at the time accepted as real history, and whose force and credit cannot, even now, be disproved or fairly denied. Examined as it has been here by the test of careful criticism, the legend of the craft is no longer to be deemed a fable or myth. It is a historical narrative related in the quaint language and in the peculiar spirit of the age when it was written. After the revival of Freemasonry in the beginning of the 18th century, this legend, for the most part misunderstood, served as a foundation on which were erected, first by Anderson and then by other writers who followed him, enlarged stories of the rise and progress of Freemasonry. In these repeated and expanded tales, the symbolic ideas or the mythical suggestions of the ancient legend were often spread out into statements for the most part of the nature of fables. Such writers, though they were educated and even learned men, have introduced not so much any new legends, but rather theories founded on a legend. By these they have traced the origin and the progress of the institution in reports without historic force and sometimes contrary to historic truth. We must admit that the method in which these theories have been prepared and presented, with the support of what has seemed to be facts quoted from the records, has caused them to take, by some extent, the form of legends. As a means of separating them from the pure legends which existed before the 18th century, we prefer to call them theories. 
Of course, their chief tendency has been, by the use of claims having little or no basis in fact, to confuse the true history of the order. Yet they have secured so large a place in its literature and have exerted so much influence on modern Masonic ideas that they must be reviewed and analyzed at length, in order that the reader may completely understand the legendary history of the institution. These theories, founded as they are on assumed traditions, form a part of that legendary history. The theory of Dr. Anderson will be the first to claim our attention because it has the lead in order of appearance. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.